Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel I'm super excited for, Oblivion 2, Backlash. I absolutely love the original film. And after talking with this week's guest, director, writer, Rondo Award winner for his new book, I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter. And I'm talking about, of course, Sam Ernie. I've just said it to you. <laughs> so yeah man Oof. super excited Oblivion 2 Backlash love the first one and I love Sam I love his work so we reached out to him because he's done some really epic sequels like Oblivion 2 Backlash and Elvira's Haunted Hills and it's pretty cool right before I interviewed him a few weeks back he was getting ready to go back to Romania where they filmed it him and Cassandra Peterson uh, the amazing Elvira uh, and a bunch of like super fans, 30 super fans in the United States all flew out there. They revisited filming locations, sets, and Sam, when he was there, his oblivion set still stands today. So it was pretty neat, especially just talking to him about that. And uh, yeah, his origin story is great. He grew up basically in the film industry, the movie viewing industry. His uh, father and grandfather owned rival uh cinemas so from that he had the opportunity to see films so much and he, and he and he just loved it and then on like a family vacation he saw something that's a really cool story when it comes to behind the scenes movie making from there on out he wanted to that's what he wanted to do so he talks about a funny story with brian de palma vincent price oh my god i love love those stories and i love that vincent always says the same line to sam every time he sees him but yeah, so this is a fun one. Do me a favor if you're new here, please subscribe, like, share, follow, you know, all that good stuff. And uh, if you've been here before, welcome back. You look great. Did you get a haircut? Love the shirt. So without further ado, here is director, like I said, Rondo Award winner, Sam Irving. Cool, man. Yeah, so Sam, I'm so happy we finally connected. This is pretty cool. You're shooting a cool movie that comes out. It comes out in the end of June, right? The Love in the Zion National Park. Yeah, Love in Zion National Park. It's a Hallmark romantic comedy that we shot uh, in Utah, Zion National Park and around there. And it's actually premiering on Saturday, May 20th. And we just like three weeks ago, we're we're recording this on May 2nd and uh, literally is one of the fastest post-productions I've ever gone through. So it's, it's and, and complicating that even more is that I'm trying to get as much work done as I can this week, because on Friday I am on the, what is it? The fifth or the sixth I'm leaving for Romania to host with Elvira, Amazing. a group of 30 people, all fans of Elvira to visit all the Transylvanian locations where we shot our um, movie Elvira's Haunted Hills, which was a spoof of the Vincent Price Edgar Allan Poe movies. And uh, we're so excited to go back there and see some of our crew people that we, um, that we, you know, worked with. And our, in fact, our director of photography, VRL Sergovici is now head of the studio where we built all the and and they shoot Tim Burton's Wednesday there, and he, we're oh, going to cool. get. I mean, it's just going to be this amazing trip. So, how did that get put together? Was it fans over there, like in a group? They reached out to you and uh, Cassandra. 
They're um, the fans are coming. Most of them are coming from the U.S. Um, it, it was nice. a U.S. based um, tour company that um, that does these kind of celebrity hosted tour groups around, and they approached Cassandra with this idea, and she loved it. And then they said, well, what, what, how about Sam? What about he, him coming along? And I'm like, yes, oh my God, I would love to do that. So it just all worked out. It's great. Do you ever think about that with film? Like a lot of people I, I interview, their, their, their work is like 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and, and still some are working today. But they never think like when you make a movie, I think because when movies were made, even in the 90s, it was going to be in the video store and then it was out of the video store and then people could you know, buy it in a store or something. I don't think anybody ever envisioned like the on demand or just everything being available all the time. So that's what's fascinating. Like, so you do that movie was that late 90s film to come out in 2001? Got it in 2000 and it came out in 2001. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, like, that's so great. 21 years later, like, people are still, are still, I know, and still discovering it. I mean, it didn't really get much of a release at all originally. It went straight. I mean, we did some midnight shows, a lot of midnight shows and stuff, trying to uh, generate a lot of interest, but it mostly went direct to video. And the video companies weren't even really promoting it that well back then. We just kind of got screwed over at every turn. And then it never, it just never appeared anywhere. It was never on television literally until two years ago. Um, Scout Factory came out with the Blu-ray, the 20th anniversary Blu-ray. Um, it suddenly got picked up by Tubi and, you know, is now streaming and you can sort of see it now. But for the longest time, if you didn't happen have a you know dvd of it or something you wouldn't you would never have seen it and so i'm finding that it's almost like a new film in a way yeah. because are discovering it right and left that had never even knew it existed so <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool it's i'm really really thrilled about it and the movie also stars in addition to alvira of course it also stars richard o'brien who was riffraff in rocky horror picture show and yeah. most people Realized that he wrote Rocky Horror. He wrote the music, the lyrics, the play, the screenplay of the movie, everything. He's Mr. Rocky Horror. And he um, he knew all the Vincent Price movies that we were spoofing inside and out, just like we did. And so it was just this labor of love that was fantastic. We just had so much fun making it. I think of it as, you know, the way that Mel Brooks made Young Frankenstein as a love letter to the Universal Horror movies. That, yeah. That's what is to Vincent Price and to those Edgar Allan Poe films. And there is a pit and a pendulum. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, Sam. So obviously have you, you have your book that people are loving and I love your, I love your awards you give out on Facebook for like the 50th and the 69th. And that's really okay. funny. I do my Facebook very tongue in cheek. Uh, anybody out there should try to, uh, to friend me on Facebook is I just try to have fun and keep it all upbeat and, and positive. And um, this, one of my followers said, to, said two or three years ago, he said, you need a name for your followers. Kind of like, you know, Lady Gaga has the little monsters and the deadheads. And my favorite one was always Benedict Cumberbatch had the Cumberbitches. And so I just thought, okay, well, I'm not exactly a celebrity, but I yeah. can be a my own mind and have fun with this in a tongue-in-cheek way and let's figure out a name for my followers so i put it out there 
that people should throw me suggestions and see what, you know, what I like. And this one guy suggested sandwiches. Sandwiches, and, okay. And and spelling witches as W-I-T-C-H-E-S because sections. And I thought that was the thing. And it rhymes with cumberbitches. So <laughs> I was like, okay. So now I call my followers sandwiches and I give out awards for the when we get to certain levels of likes. So if we get to 50, I'll give out an, a, a, an award. And the prize is bragging rights. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and then, you know, we do, and I do funny numbers, like 69. We have we have 169. If something is really popular and gets up to 666, I give a free. <laughs> <laughs> so That's awesome. All good fun. And, and uh, yeah, you got to visit my page. But it, yeah, it, no, it, I'll make sure I'll put the link in for people that are listening to uh, check it out. But so, so Sam, the, in your beginnings, obviously the book, which I think it's really cool that you're donating any of the proceeds to the Trevor yeah. Project. That's amazing. Yeah. To the Trevor Project, which is an LGBTQ plus organization that benefits LGBTQ youth. Yeah, no, and that's key because kids, even in a day and age, you think it, it seems like there was a point that things were getting better, but now I think it's things are getting worse. I don't know. Way worse. And, and kids especially are, are having, you know, just under attack. So it's, uh, it's really important. And I, and I'm giving 100% of the profits to the Trevor project things, you know, Oh, we're giving a portion of the profits, which means, you know, (laughs) I'm giving everything. And, uh, so yes, it's a it's a great cause, and the book is available in hardback, paperback, and audiobook, which is only twenty one hours. With you, <laughs> Wait, are you reading it? Reading it, and also it's a collection of interviews I did with horror royalty back in the seventies when I used to publish a fanzine on horror films called Bizarre. And so this book started out as a collection of 35 interviews that I did way back then with people like Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Ingrid Pitt, uh, Donald Pleasance, all these greats. And, um, and but as I, I also had to write introductions to each one explaining how I bamboozled this interview. And oh, those cool. started to get really funny. And they're often sometimes more interesting than the interviews themselves. And and then I realized, well, I've got to set this up. So I see need some biographical chapters of my crazy monster kid childhood that led up our magazines. So the book ended up being half memoir, a coming of age memoir of my crazy um, closeted gay youth being a huge fan of horror films. And then the other half is this or uh, the collection of interviews. So for the audio book, every person who was still alive who I interviewed came, I convinced them to come in and record their answers. This is people like, like Jane Seymour. Oh my God. Yes. Linda Hayden, Madeline Smith, um, Chloe Franks, who was the little, was the little girl in house the drip blood that had the voodoo doll that killed Christopher. She's, you know, it, it, she has never appeared in fandom or conventions or anything. And I found her and got her to come in. Um, and we, and for the people who had passed away, like Diana Rigg and, and all these incredible actors, I had other actors do their voice, not do impressions, but just 
do the answers for them. And Juliet Mills of the great um, Mills dynasty, you know, her father was Sir John Mills and her sister was Haley Mills. She does Diana Rigg's voice and she was happy to do it. She said she knew Diana Rigg. They actually started in a play together on, on the London stage in the 60s. And um, Max, her husband, Maxwell Caulfield, does some voices of like- Oh, Brown. Maxwell, okay. You know him and, well. You worked yeah, with him a bunch in the early 90s, yeah. Several of my films and stuff. So it just was the most fun project to do. Now, I got Elvira to write the foreword to the book. And of course, she voices her foreword. And then another good friend of mine, Julie Brown, the funny Julie Brown with red Downtown hair. Julie Brown? Oh, people get all confused about it. They were both on NBC at the same time. Downtown Julie Brown is the is the African British um, VJ on MTV, yeah. and they made her add downtown to her name because they were already using redheaded <laughs> Lee Brown, and who had a show on MTV called Just Say Julie, and she was also she wrote and starred in Earth Girls Are Easy, and she oh, had okay. a novelty song called The Homecoming Queen's Got a Gun, and. She was in Clueless and all these other great things. And anyway, Julie's a great friend. And she agreed to read my little bio at the end. And anyway, it's a great, it's a great book. But you really need both <laughs> to get the full experience. The book itself is 350 pages, 600 photographs. The <laughs> hilarious cartoons that I had a this friend of mine do to depict some of the funnier moments of, of me bamboozling these interviews. And uh, it's just the most fun ever. And it's nominated for a Rondo Award for Best Book of the Year. And they're announcing the awards on Thursday night. I'm on pins and needles, counting every second, hoping and praying, fingers, toes, and eyes yes. crossed. <laughs> yes. That's cool. So so you're, what, like teenager when you're doing the fanzine yeah. in the 70s? I went to England twice in 74 and 75 at the age of um, 17 and 18. And, um, and just, I mean, you would not have believed it. I was already corresponding with these people. I was a total groupie and super fan. And um, I already conducted an interview with Christopher Lee through the May questionnaire. But when I, when I finally got my parents to agree to send me to England as a, high school graduation present i immediately wrote to christopher lee and said i'm coming i want to meet you in person and he said yes and he invited me to lunch at pinewood studios where he was filming a little film called the man with the golden gun which was the james bond film in which he plays the man with the golden gun he was the main villain and i spent the day he invited after we did the interview at lunch he invited me back to the set and i watched them shoot a james bond movie for half a day with Roger Moore and Britt Eklund and Maude Adams and Hervé Villachez. And it was crazy. And at the end of the day, I shared a limo, a Rolls-Royce limo back to London with Christopher Lee and Hervé Villachez. Hervé was, and now people don't know, Hervé is the little little guy from Fantasy Island. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and he was already 10 sheets to the wind. And he he played he he played Christopher Lee's sort of sidekick and was really the basis of in the Austin Powers movies the the little mini me guy was really a was a spoof of Hervé Villachez in the Man with the Golden Gun. Um, anyway, Hervé started regaling us with stories about all the prostitutes he'd hired since he'd been in and going into great detail. Now, 
heavy lisp. And he kept, I hope, are, are we okay to, to, to say some words on this? Yeah, uh, yeah, any words, any words, Sam. Um, well, he kept pronouncing pussy as puffy. <laughs> it was peppered like 10 times in every sentence. And Christopher Lee started to laugh every time. And I started to laugh. And we were absolutely in hysterics in this car. And, you know, for me, growing up with Christopher Lee as Count Dracula, very stern and very serious all the time, to see Christopher Lee in hysterics doubled over was the most hilarious thing ever. And and, crazy. and then, you know, you'd think that would be enough for one day. No, uh, that night I went to see Diana Rigg on stage in Pygmalion on the West End. Pygmalion being, you know, the, the play that that my fair lady was based on and um so she's playing eliza doolittle and i'm excited to see that because i'm a huge fan of her from the avengers tv series where she played emma peel and the james bond movie on her majesty's secret service but mostly because she played vincent price's daughter in theater of blood and so i'm sitting there waiting for the show to begin i'm hoping that after the show i'll go back i'll go to the stage door and maybe try to meet her and try to corner her for an interview well, i sitting there waiting in, in my seat, and I hear this very familiar laugh behind me. I turn around. It's fucking Vincent Price, who I, I've already met two or three times, even though I'm 17. And before I can open my mouth, he says, Sam, what are you doing here? Wow. And I believe you recognize me. I couldn't believe you remembered my name. And... He, of course, then I explained, you know, that I was dying to meet Diana. And he said, well, you're coming backstage afterwards. And he took me backstage and introduced me. And she granted an interview for the magazine. And it was just, I mean, that was, that was just one day. That's one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Where'd you grow up, Sam? Were you out in California? Is that how you ran into Vincent Price two or three times? I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. I was oh, just, okay in the mountains and my dad um, was owned movie theaters uh, and my grandfather was also in the and for competing chains. And so I got into free to every single movie theater in town. And then um, this was back in the days before home entertainment and video or anything. So if, you know, to be able to go see movies multiple times was pretty golden and yeah. I spoiled as a kid and it was just my playground. And so uh, at the age of eight, my dad took the whole family on a cross-country road trip to California to Disneyland and, the, you know, and, you know, to see all the sites going out west, like the Grand Canyon or whatever. And he, because of his connections in the movie business, we got a VIP tour at Warner Brothers. Well, at age eight, I walked onto the set of The Great Race, directed by Blake Edwards. And they were shooting, oh, you know, just a little iceberg sequence in a tank of water with wind machines and wave machines and with two antique cars on the iceberg, as well as Natalie Wood, Jack Lemon, Tony Curtis, and Peter Falk all on this iceberg. And I'm watching them do this and the eyes literally just popped right out of my head that moment that I decided I wanted to direct movies. And the same day, I also got to watch some shooting of Two on a Guillotine, which I was also very excited about because it was more of a horror movie. And 
Um, I mean, it just, you know, it was unbelievable. So from that day forward, I took the eight millimeter home movie camera out of my dad's hands and never gave it back. Started making my own little movies. And um, and then, you know, I just that's what I wanted to do. But when I got to my teens, I um, was such a fan of horror films. And I because of my dad, I had access to get posters and photographs and press books and all this cool material that I could um, use in and create a fanzine. So I created the fanzine Bazaar, which I did one a year. It was an annual publication uh, that I would do during summer break from school. And they were pretty mad. They, they it grew each each time it grew bigger. and bigger. But by issue three. You know, it was like a hundred pages, and it was pretty slick, and it was it had a full color cover of Michael Sarazen as the creature from Frankenstein: The True Story, and and you know, I I got my parents to send me to London, where I got all these incredible interviews, and um and the magazine took off, and it was being sold at um you know cinema shops and bookshops like uh like Larry Edmonds in Hollywood which is still here they actually carried it way back in the day and so there was a store in New York called Cinemabilia there was a place in London there was a place in Australia and those were meccas that any any film buff who would go to those cities as a tourist even would knew about those stores and they would instantly go there and my magazine got picked up and seen by so many people all over the world it was crazy and it got seen by a lot of major directors francis ford coppola bought copies of it oh my god spielberg um uh um william friedkin um de palma who i later worked for um they all knew about this publication and so my book was basically, I was like, I've got to, people wanted me to just reprint the issues. And I'm like, um, half of those issues are my really early review of the of movie, horror movies. And they're so embarrassing and so badly written that I just couldn't bear to embarrassing stuff out there again. But the interviews were great time capsules. They really were. And these actors were still at the height of their career. Oh, yeah. You know, wasn't a 20 years later looking back kind of interview where they had honed their answers and whitewashed them and whatever. They were raw and unfiltered. And I guess in the early 70s, you know, I guess publicists had not gotten a hold of their clients to tell them that they <laughs> bad shit about their colleagues because they some bad shit about their colleagues. Oh, man. Say, oh, um, and Donald Pleasance is going on and on about how he doesn't want to be typecast in horror films and he's never going to do a horror film again. Of course, this was <laughs> two years before Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's so funny to read them now. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited to have it out there again. No, that's cool. You did that. Now I had to order it. I love, I love obviously interviews. I love talking to people and uh, I love reading interviews. Like, I don't know if you ever saw, uh, What's his name? The director, Judd Apatow, was interviewing yeah. people when he was like 15, 16, because really? his mom was a waitress at a comedy club in Long Island. So he used to get people. And I have the book somewhere. But in one of the interviews, he, he uh, interviewed Seinfeld like three or four different times. One time he interviewed him, he he sort of lied to him. He said he was from a radio station. And then he, I, I think it was all through 
like letters and they set it up and everything was go- going. And he goes, what radio station is this again? And it was like a high school radio station. So he was like 14 years old and was going through pu- puberty. His voice was cracking, but uh, no, I got to pick that book out. So Sam, so from there at the age of eight, obviously seeing that, you know, seeing movie making, which is like the greatest thing when you, when you watch a movie and you get the opportunity, like you saw in your right in front of your eyes, when you watch like behind the scenes of how scenes are made, and then you watch the scene again, you like this more, like this more appreciation of it. Obviously as a director, you see it through the lens and then you see it like the final cut. So what was your first steps to follow that dream? Like to take that, obviously you're making your own home movies, but what did you go to school? Did you just go out to Cali? Well, I did. I went to film school at the University of South Carolina, the other U.S. East. <laughs> the other U.S. And um, mainly because my dad also had theaters in Columbia, South Carolina. And I could work um, promoting movies. I would be I would do all the newspaper ads and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I was earning a living while I was going to school. Um yeah, I was nepotism, of course, but I did a really good job, and and I was passionate about it. I just loved working for the movie theaters and everything. It was so fantastic. And but I also on campus, I ran the a movie theater, the campus movie theater, where we had a film program that ran three hundred and sixty five days a year. We would run art house movies during the week for free, and on the weekends. We would charge a dollar and we would show a little bit more commercial movies. And with the money that we made on the weekends, it was a 300 seat theater. We could afford to um, finance the free movies all week and then even have a little leftover. Well, with that leftover, we occasionally would would put on some kind of special event. And uh, in 1975, I had become obsessed with Brian De Palma. I had seen Sisters. Which was uh, which was a big Hitchcockian kind of thriller, and uh, with music by Bernard Herrmann, and uh, you know just incredible with Margot Kidder. And then I had seen Phantom of the Paradise, which completely blew me away, and uh, which was a rock and roll comedy take on Phantom of the Opera, modern day. And so, with those two films, I'm like, we are having a Brian De Palma film festival. Now, he wasn't really all that well-known other than those films um, in those days. Uh, And those films had not done very well at the box office. Um, So I was like, I just want to try to get in touch with him and see if he'll come. So I looked in, Dad, my father had all the trade journals. And I looked in Hollywood Reporter and Variety to see what was going on in the production charts. And there was a listing for a film called Carrie that was in pre-production and it was casting in, in Hollywood. And there was a phone number for the casting office. So old called that number. They put it right on the phone. I told him what we're doing. And he said, listen, I live in New York. I'm broke. I really need some stuff in my apartment. Um, if you can give me the airfare to come from L.A. To, to South Carolina, then to New York for the weekend and back to L.A., I'll come for the triangle there. And I said, done. And we had enough money in our coffers to pay for it. Um, now, this I should mention, this casting session for sessions going on for Carrie were, turned out to be perhaps the most influential casting sessions in the history of Hollywood because 
Brian De Palma and George Lucas were sitting together at a table reading every young actor in town for Carrie and Star Wars. Every person who entered that room read a scene from both movies. And then, and then if they found somebody that they loved, they would fight over who was going to get them. But I mean, Carrie Fisher read for Carrie and Star Wars. I mean, it was nuts. Wow. Of course, time, but later found that out. And so anyway, De Palma comes to South Carolina. We're having a big midnight showing of Phantom of the Paradise. Everybody to come in costume. He's judging the best costume. We're giving prizes. It's 300 people totally sold out. And the movie starts and there's no sound. And I run up to the projection booth. The sound bulb had burned out. And it's now midnight in Columbia, South Carolina. There's no place to get another bulb. We had to cancel the screening. Send it home. I felt like, okay, all the goodwill that I have built up with De Palma up to this moment, it just got flushed down the drain. But this will tell you what a sardonic sense of humor kind of guy he is. He thought it was absolutely hilarious. And it actually, in retrospect, kind of made me a little more memorable to him. Uh, because I ended up, um, I mean, I was still in school, but uh, between my junior and senior year, I called him up and I knew he was doing his next film. Because, of course, of course, Carrie then opened and became this huge breakthrough hit. And now he's like the A-list director in Hollywood. And he was doing a big budget 20th Century Fox movie called The Fury, which was another telekinesis thriller with, and this was with Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes and all these major stars. And I called him up and said, could I come to Chicago where you guys are shooting during my summer break and work on it? And he said, sure. So I went up and worked on that. Um, and I did a, uh, I got an assignment from Cinema Fantastic magazine because I was no longer doing my fanzine anymore to do a journal on the making of the film and interviewed all everybody for it, including the editor, Paul Hirsch, who edited Star Wars and John Williams, you might've heard of him. He did the score. And I mean, it was... <laughs> All a list all the way, and so then I go finish my senior year, and now De Palma calls me in May as I'm about to graduate. Says I'm going to be doing this low budget film this summer of comedy called Home Movies. Kirk Douglas is going to star in it. It's being financed by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Me, we're all putting money in. And do you want to come up and work on it? I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm graduating. Yeah, uh, yes. So I jumped on the plane after my last exam, didn't even go to my graduation ceremony. Who cared at that point? And I thought I was just going to be a production assistant like I was on The Fury. And he, tell, he greets me with the news that I am the associate producer and production manager. And he just threw me into the deep end to see if I could swim. And I did okay. And he hired me to be his assistant and sort of uh, head of his two-person production company, me and him, <laughs> where I'd be a script reader and do reports and, you know, that kind of thing. And it was uh, it was just, you know, that was right out of film school. So that's how I got started in the business. Wow. I worked as his assistant on Dress to Kill and, um, and then for a year on Blowout before, you know, getting it developed and ready for shooting. And then he recommended that I produce a low budget film that he was advising 
um, called The First Time, and it was unfortunately shooting at the same time Blowout was, so I didn't get to actually work on the shoot of Blowout, but um, but ended up, you know, instead of being De Palma's assistant on Blowout, I was the producer, the sole producer on this film that New Line Cinema ended up releasing, which, you know, again, sort of moved me up the ladder a little bit. And then, of course, my goal was to direct, and I did a short film. Uh, I used De Palma's editing room, which he gave me for free, used between projects, and, and it, one of the actors in it was Bill Finley, who had played the Phantom of the Paradise. I was so <laughs> incredibly thrilled. Uh, and Wayne, Wayne Knight from Seinfeld, who played Newman on Seinfeld, uh, this really cool cast. Wow, and, nice. That's early uh, Wayne Knight. That's probably, I, I, I couldn't tell you a lot the first time I saw him, but 85, yeah. he must have been very green. Very, it was very early Wayne Knight. And of course, he was in Jurassic Park and basically oh, yeah. interrogation scene and, and everything. Um, but anyway, uh, that film uh, got a lot, it got selected for Sundance. It got a big splash there. And then it in, I did it in 35 millimeter. I wasn't, I wasn't playing around with that. I wanted this to be my card. And I managed to get it booked theatrically in Los Angeles with Martin Scorsese's After Hours and in New York with John Borman's Emerald Forest. And it opened and got a really good review in the New York Times by Janet Maslin. And that sort of got the ball rolling for me as a director. And I got my first feature film off the ground called Guilty as Charged with Rod Steiger and Lauren Hutton and Heather Graham, Isaac Hayes, Zelda Rubenstein. And, and it was a horror film about a about a mad, uh, this this nutcase who kidnaps murderers who've gotten off, and he puts them in his own dungeon and fries them on his own. <laughs> it's good. I watched it before we were going to chat like, a few months ago. I went through a bunch of your movies, and that was yeah. the first one I watched. Oh, yeah, that wow. was cool. No, no I, you worked with Rod a few times because another one I watched yesterday, which I got to tell you, I think it's the coolest concept, and I don't know if it's ever been done before or ever since, but uh, the whole concept of out there. I think is like such a cool concept that he buys this little brownie because my wife takes photos and we collect like old cameras. And it's so that's such a cool concept that everybody's like, no, yeah. And Rod Steiger, Steiger in that movie is so good. Like I got back and, and play a part in that too. Um, yeah. This guy finds a, an old camera at a, at a, at a yard sale and it's got film in it that hasn't been developed. He develops it. And aliens with a spaceship and he's like is this real is somebody making a movie what's going on and so he has to investigate it and lo and behold maybe it is real and um yeah and it's 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 a it's it's comedic but it's also it's a really cool kind of you know you know mystery thriller sort of thing and uh and everybody's in that movie um, Bill Campbell from the Rocketeer is he's the lead. great. Yeah. Shaw, who does the voice of the mom on on uh, Family Guy is or is it Family Guy or American Dad? One of those two. And uh, uh, she's the female lead. But then we also have, oh, you know, Billy Bob Thornton, just before he went off to do Sling Blade and win an Oscar. Uh, and Rod Steiger, Oscar winner. Uh Bobcat Goldthwait, Julie Brown, who we talked about before, uh, June Lockhart from Lost in Space, 
uh, Carl Strykin, who is lurching the Adams Family movies and the giant on Twin Peaks. Uh, I mean, just and Oblivion all- and the and the guy in, in Oblivion. Yes, yes, <laughs> and I mean, just everybody's in this movie. And Bill Campbell was date was still dating um, uh, um, Jennifer Connelly from they met making The Rocketeer. And by then, Jennifer Connelly was, you know, turning into really major actress and, of course, Oscar winner and everything. And she would visit him on set all the time. And so one day, have enough extras at the grocery store scene where he was in line with and with Julie Brown. And I said, Jennifer, come on, we'll be a couple in line. So if you if if you don't blink, you can see the the two of us in line at the grocery store with no lines or anything. We're just there as background. Oh my god, I gotta look that up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No, because I watched that. I watched Oblivion, which I, I loved. Oh, and great. I think Billy Campbell's great. I don't know if he's still acting. I didn't click on his IMDb, but like, yeah, Rocketeer. And then, yeah, I really liked Oblivion, too. Yeah, Oblivion's, are, the two Oblivion films are really fun. We shot them back to back in Romania. Uh, there's cow, Cowboys and Aliens kind of movies. And uh, and yeah, Cowboys and Aliens really stole a lot from us, actually, including <laughs> An aliens phrase was on our poster it was the copy line on our poster and uh uh and then tom cruise stole our title oblivion for some one of his sci-fi movies yes and, he did but um yeah we just keep getting ripped off but um but our film starred uh well people like julie newmar the original oh. Catwoman series she plays a feline alien who runs the saloon yeah. in the- the distant planet in the future. And she's wearing, you know, a leopard cat suit and everything is perfect. And they're doing all these <laughs> women. And uh, and George Decay from Star Trek, uh, he plays the town drunk. And I wanted to have all kinds of little Star Trek nods. And that was on you? That was your choice? The Jim Beam? I love that. He comes out of the, out of the bar and he's drunk and he's got a bottle of Jim Beam and he goes, Jim beam me up and takes a big swig um and, and then we had isaac hayes who was an oscar winner for the theme from shaft and had been in in and acted in escape from new york and i just loved him to death and uh we had maxwell caulfield was in part two in in oblivion two uh we had meg foster we had again um, carl striken from adam's family and on twin peaks uh, God, you know, just again, an amazing, amazing cast and so much fun to make. Oh my God. We built that Western town in Romania from the ground up. It was literally a cornfield when, when I arrived wow. and it's built there. It's in the back lot now of, of the studio that got built around it, uh, called Castell Films and Kevin Costner's, um, Hatfields and the McCoys should use that Western town street on their series. It's still, it's, <laughs> 
pops up all the time. I'm like, damn, this is so cool. It lives on. <laughs> That's cool. That'd be cool if they left Miss Kitties on the on the place. Did I wish they did? They they painted the name on one of the buildings, and it actually showed up in a couple of other things that were painted over it. But <laughs> I think that's yeah. gone. No, no, it was really good. I, I was like joking with my buddy. I was like, man, if I was if I saw this as a kid, I probably want a Jackie Swanson poster. Yeah, that Jack- movie. I don't know what else she was in, but she was like stunning. Like you yeah. couldn't take your eyes off her. She had like this look. Yeah. And Musetta Vander played this this dominatrix sort of, you know, evil henchman of, of Red Eye and it played by Andrew Diboff. And she went on to do the exact same character in the Wild Wild West with with um, where she was Kenneth Branagh's, you know. Oh, that's who I'm talking about. The girl that was wearing the leather and the whip. That was who that's who you mean. OK, I had the names mixed up. OK, her. Yes. Really, really beautiful. And. And, but literally, she played, I mean, literally the same character, including in the Wild Wild West. They just told, they just stole it and her from our movie. And she learned, for our movie, she hired the person who taught Michelle Pfeiffer how to use it when she played Catwoman to teach her her whip-wielding stuff for Oblivion. So, I mean, she really came prepared. It was It was amazing. That's really cool. I love that. Like we were talking behind the scene things. If you ever yeah. see the behind the scene moment of her doing that, Michelle Fiverr, she did it. Like, I don't know if it was the first try, but they show the scene that she did it. And as soon as yeah. she hit the last one, the, everyone erupts, like everybody in the crowd. Cause it was all one take. Very cool, man. I, I've got to watch that again. I did see it years and years ago, but um, yeah, it, it, it's all really cool. I just think it's cool about those movies, especially like full moon and, I guess Roger Corman too. You have these collection of these people that have these, they're not like the it people at that time, but it's still really cool to see those people share a scene, like to see, you know, Catwoman and George Takai and, and Isaac Hayes. Like it's really neat in a movie to see that. I love that. And, and even back then when we were making them, I tried to, you know, I had a much bigger hand in casting back then than they let me now on my Hallmark and Lifetime movies. Every Everything is kind of by committee and, you know, just too many cooks in the kitchen when it comes to casting. Um, not that anybody's bad. It's just I want iconic people that I love from, you know, movies and TV shows, even if they might be considered has-beens or, you know, whatever. I just think it's the coolest thing. And I would always try to cast every role that I possibly could with somebody recognizable. And, and, and I did it on those first few movies that I did back in the nineties. And it was, it was just great fun. I mean, I would, I, I did a film called acting on impulse. I gotta that watch was, that. It's on my list. I gotta find it because the cast is unbelievable. The main girl in it. I, 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 I forget her name, but she's in a ton of stuff. Nancy Allen, of course, from, oh, from yeah. my is she's, she's in it. Linda Fiorentino, who was yes. in the Scorsese film and Men in Black and everything. D. Thomas Howe, Zelda Rubenstein, again, from Poltergeist. Um, Isaac Hayes, again. I had Paul Bartel and Mary Warnoff, both from Eating Raul, which is one of my favorite dark comedies. <laughs> had Dick Sargent from Bewitched, his very last film role. I had... Um, 
Oh, I ran into Peter Lupus from the original Mission Impossible series at Jack in a Box <laughs> having a burger. And I was like, Peter Lupus, oh my God, will you come be in my movie? And he did. He came out. Holy shit. And um, it was Ralph, just, Ralph I, Mouth, Don Most was in that movie. Happy Days. I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting people. Oh, Cassandra Peterson. First yeah. time I worked with Elvira was in that movie. I can't, I asked her to do uh, not as Elvira, but as this bouncer at a country Western bar. And she wears this um, blonde wig that had belonged to Daryl Hannah and does kind of a Dolly Parton thing. And she cards Nancy Allen and Linda Fiorentino and, and C. Thomas Howell as they're going into this country Western bar. Um, yeah, I mean, just at every turn, there was somebody else that you would recognize and just so much fun. And uh, I even had, um, oh God, now I can't think of his name, but there was this old timer who was in his 90s and he'd been in everything from, um, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington to the Lu to I Love Lucy to everything. He's, he's has like 400 credits. And uh, he, we even got him to do a cameo. And it. It, was, it was wild, just wild. No, it's cool because obviously growing up with, you know, with movie in your in your blood with your, with yeah. your being in the family business that you like obviously you're directing a movie you have a job to do but it's like i want to enjoy all these people because i know because you're that person i'm sure i'm sure you do that today you watch something and you're like hey what's that guy from or what's that girl from because yeah. that's what movies are so it's so cool watching like those oblivion movies and you're like hey i know that person what else are they from and it's it's neat yeah yeah it, it's and especially if if there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor already yeah a really serious drama you may not you you know having this kind of what you might call stunt casting might take you out of it for a, a, a beat you know but when it's a little tongue-in-cheek i just love the baggage that they bring to the table that they're you know as soon as they come on the screen the viewer is like oh 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 yeah i can't wait to see this person again and you know <laughs> I just find it really fun and I wish I could do it more often. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It just, maybe they just don't let that happen because those, they don't never do that on those Hallmark movies. There's no like no, random. And have, have these old, older TV stars and things like that play one role or two role or play the boss or something, but they don't, they don't have enough fun with it. You know, I would, I would be in there trying to get them to play every single role. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously Elvira just before that I talked with Jonathan Mangum and you directed a strip mall a couple yeah. episodes of strip mall he thought that yeah. was his ticket he was like man I got on a series this is it there's a lot of cool people on that series I don't know if it was just the time it was on or yeah but that oh and strip mall we we I was trying to tell you who Julie Brown was she created and starred in that in strip oh, mall okay. That's for Comedy Central. And, but it has, you know, her husband was played by Jim O'Hare, who later played Jerry and um, Stella Stevens plays his mother. And she was, she was, you know, Poseidon Adventure. She just recently passed away, unfortunately. And we also had from Vernon Shirley, Cindy Williams, who just passed yeah. away. Yeah. She was unbelievably funny. And 
again, just a, an amazing cast of people. Tim Bagley, who's I think is one of those underrated guys who whenever he shows up at something, he is yeah. just great. And um, also, yeah, Tim is Tim Bagley is fabulous. Uh, and then uh, Maxwell Caulfield was in it. That's uh, and Mac, I'd already worked with Maxwell in the second Oblivion film, so that was a nice reunion for us. And it was just again really fun. And I did. There were two seasons of Strip Mall, it on Comedy Central. Kind of got screwed up because um, they aired it on the night right after the Man Show, and it was the not the same kind of audience thing. And it was the same time that they were running Strangers with Candy on another night. And we're like, why are we not with Strangers with Candy? That would be. Yeah. And so it never really took off in a big way, but it did get a second season. I directed a few episodes in the first season. And then I went off to Romania to do Elvira's Haunted Hills. And I came right back and, and did a couple more episodes for the for the next season of Strip Mall. But it was it was great fun. And uh and you can you can get episodes of it if you go on Julie Brown's website. She sells um, DVDs or blue. I'm not sure if they're Blu-rays or or not. Maybe just DVDs of the uh, the whole series. So it's it's really worth checking out. Oh, cool! I'll put that in. No, it's pretty neat. And people don't think about that. Like uh, maybe when I was younger or before I started interviewing people that worked on TV, like just the whole politics and really matters. Like the show leading up to you. And then I, I love that Dana Carvey documentary about the Dana Carvey show, like how they didn't even realize what home improvement was. They thought it was just a family show. But one of the episodes was like, Brad was like, his buddy got caught with heroin and they're like, holy shit, that that's leading into him with the cat nipples as Bill Clinton to start the show. So it, mat it matters what leads in to what yeah. people are going to, because they'll be like, oh, this is totally different. I don't want to yeah. see this, you know? Exactly. Well, and then it got silly because there were there were some uh, like three teenage boy characters in strip mall. And because that was kind of the audience for the man show, the network came to, a, you know, came to Julie Brown and said, all right, we really need to push that audience. And you need to like in and out of every commercial, we need to end with a scene with the teenage boys. And when we come from a commercial, we have to, you know, it was that kind of bullshit going on. Like, oh my God, please, you know, put us on another day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how'd you connect with, uh, to do all virus Haunted Hills? Was it just knowing Cassandra from then or how'd that, how'd that come about? What happened? Um, I went to, I was a huge fan of Elvira in the eighties, watched her hosting gigs and then watched her first movie, Elvira's, uh, Elvira Mistress of the Dark which was late 80s and loved that and just thought she was the funniest thing. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I uh, I lived in New York when I was working for De Palma and, and lived there for about 12 years. But I went, it kind of goes back to even when I was in college, sorry to make this story too complicated, but no. there was a gay friend of mine at the University of South Carolina named Lanier Laney he went to New York and ended up becoming a writer on Saturday Night Live, which was so impressive. I was like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing. And his boyfriend was Terry Sweeney, who became the first 
openly gay mem- cast member of Saturday Night Live. But they started out as writers behind the scenes, and then Cherry got bumped up to be actually be on the show as a regular. And pe- if you watch the show back in the 80s, he was most famous for always playing Nancy Reagan in drag. And... Um, was hilarious and it was a really breakthrough season for you know having an lgbtq out um character on there and it was also the same year that denitra vance was on there and she was the first open lesbian who was on on saturday night live and i became friends with denitra and i became friends with terry and because through lanier and i would go to tapings and we'd all hang out and it was great Okay, so flash forward to, I've now moved out to Los Angeles. Now, Terry and Lanier are, have moved to LA and they're right, working as writers on Mad TV. Well, they had a party and they invited me to come. Well, because they're Saturday Night Live and Mad TV, they're like royalty among all the comedians of, of show business. And, you know, their party was just everywhere you turned. It was another famous comic actor or member of Saturday Night Live or cast member of Mad TV or whatever. I'm just like on cloud nine. And I look in the corner and there's Cassandra Peterson. And I'm like, holy shit. And I run over to Terry and I, and Lanier and say, you have to introduce me. And they take me over and they tell her that, that I'm the director of, of a new film called Guilty as Charged. And she went, oh, I just saw Guilty as Charged at the theater, and I loved it. And in fact, I've been wanting to meet you because if I ever do another Elvira film, I want to consider you to to be a director. And I was like, oh, my God, no way. So we became friends, and I cast her in this little cameo and acting on Impulse just a few months later. And she invited me to come to the taping of her Elvira pilot, that um, that never it was for CBS, but it never got off. You know, it never got picked up for series. But it was really fun to see a sitcom. You know, a three camera sitcom with a live audience of wow. Elvira, and the whole concept was she played she and um, and Catherine Hellman. Remember her from Brazil? She was on soap, but she was on Brazil where they stretch her eat her. Oh her, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Catherine Hellman. The two of them played ants with with uh, magical, you know, they were witches, magic powers, and it's Elvira, you know, it's it's, it's El- she's dressed as Elvira and playing Elvira, and her sister played by Catherine Hellman, and they have a niece who lives with them who has magic powers, and they're in suburbia, kind of like bewitched and trying to, you know, not let people on to the fact that they're they have all these powers. Well, of course. The whole concept got completely stolen for uh, the teenage witch, and they just switched the focus from one of the ants to to the teenage Sabrina. But it was the exact same concept, and Sandra has never gotten over it. And I don't blame her because it was just crazy how they treated her, and then then turned it down, and then stole the idea. <laughs> My God! But at any rate, we just did, we just became social friends. And finally, several years later, she called me up and she said, listen, we've tried to get another Elvira film off the ground everywhere. Nobody wants to do it. So my husband and I have decided we're going to self-finance it. We're mortgaging our house and everything. Um, I always told you that I wanted to consider you to direct. 
And um, so we're, we are interviewing several directors, but come up to the house and let's talk about it. So I went up there and she hands me the script and she goes, this is Elvira's Haunted Hills. It's a spoof of the Vincent Price Edgar Allan Poe movies. How are you real familiar with those? And I go, this is Vincent Price's monologue from the climax of Fit in the Pit. Do you know where you are, Bartolome? You're about to enter hell. Hell, the Neverworld, the Infernal Region, the Abode of the Damned, the Torment, Gehenna, Naraka, the Pit, and the Pendulum, the Razor Edge. Thus, the condition of man bound on an island from which he can never or hope to escape, surrounded by the waking pit of hell, which must destroy him finally. And she cocked her head, looked at me like I was crazy, and said, you're hired. And that's how, literally how I got the... the and um, it was the most fun I've ever had making a movie. We, it takes place in the 1800s in this, in this castle. Um, she wanted to go to Romania to and, and she'd already been there to tour castles to try to find the right castle to shoot in. And I said, Cassandra, no, 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 no. What I, I had already made the Oblivion films in Romania. I had been to the castles. I had toured them all. There's Castle Dracula and all these other places. But they're either way up on a mountaintop, all disheveled and no electricity and freezing cold and, and you know, water leaking. Or they're so fabulous that they are velvet rope museums that they're not going to let you come and shoot in. And, and they look too pristine and too pretty for, you know, a spooky castle environment. And they're certainly not going to let you, you know, spin cobwebs and make it all spooky. And I said, you know, Roger Corman didn't shoot in real castles. He shot on sound stages in Hollywood. And, and you know, the establishing shots are always those great matte paintings. And, and it's the artifice that we want to embrace to spoof those movies. We don't want to suddenly go shoot them in a real and, and turn it into something too realistic. And the beauty of going to Romania is that you can have cheaper labor and be able to build sets for nothing. And that's what we did. And um, so all the castle interiors, the dungeons, everything were all created on sound stages. And we did a few exteriors in Transylvania um, for like the entrance way to the castle. We shot just the lower part of the church and the, the door and the gate and where the carriage comes in and everything. But we framed out the upper portion and in the wide shots, you know, it was all it was all an effect. And um, anyway, it was just it was so much fun to be able to design. I mean, I designed the Western town for oblivion and all that. But but this was a horror, you know, spoof. Yeah, yeah. Really in my wheelhouse. And to be able to, you know, say, okay, we want a dungeon. I want it to look just like, I want the pit and the pendulum. I want that, pen, the pendulum. I want the inner workings and the gears. I want it to look just like it did in the Roger Corman movie. And that's what, you know, it was all made to order. And that's what we got. And it was so incredible. Um, I just absolutely, absolutely loved it. But the other aspect of it was that both Cassandra and I had become, had independently become friends with Vincent Price during his lifetime. And this was our love letter to him. And it just meant the world to us. And we dedicated the film to him. And it was, it was really something special. I write about all of my relationship with Vincent Price in my book, by the way. Cool. We became, I mean, I started 
you know, meeting him at the age of 14, but really we became very close friends. I developed a film that I wanted to direct with him that unfortunately never got off the ground, but we had, we, you know, we met several times and really I became very, very close friends with him and it became almost intimate at one point. And um, we, you know, but we just, we just, there was a really special thing between us. And when I did Guilty as Charged, I really wanted to cast Vincent Price in that because as I mentioned, it's about a madman who kidnaps murderers and puts them in a dungeon and fries them on an electric chair. It's the perfect Vincent Price role. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the producer, you know, by then Vincent was getting pretty up there in age. He had just done um, Edward Scissorhands where he played um, a small part in yeah. that, rather decrepit. And the producers were also, they didn't, they just felt, as soon as I brought up Vincent Price, they said, oh, it's going to get a wise, the movie is a, is a low-budget horror film. And, you know, we want, we want to, you know, we want Rod Steiger, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, Vincent probably isn't in the best condition to do it. Um, so, uh, but when the movie opened, it got reviewed in the Los Angeles Times and Kevin Thomas said Spider's performance was reminiscent of Vincent Price in Theater of Blood. Well, that was just about the greatest thing that could ever be said ever by a critic for one of my films. And the phone rang that afternoon and it was Vincent Price who had just had, had seen the review and read it and called me to congratulate me and I get really emotional with it. he. I I said Vincent, let me. It's playing at a theater in Westwood. Let me come and pick you up because they live near there. And I said, you know, let's go see it. And he said, I'm I'm really an invalid now, Sam. I can't I can't go out. But if I get better, I really want to see it. And it just it just killed me that that he couldn't go. I wanted him to see it so bad. And. Uh, and then he wrote me a letter I got a few days later and he said, it was so great to talk to you on the phone and congratulate you on the great review. And um, he just went on and on about how he was so proud of, <laughs> I, I, it's just really hard to talk about because he ended up passing away not long after that. And it was just the most amazing gift to be able to have that final um, connection with him at the SES. Yeah. So I, I'm, I am serious when I say that this movie is the love letter to him. I mean, it was really from the heart. I'm, and Cassandra too, she, she absolutely adored him and had become really great friends with him as well. Wow. That's, that's cool. That, that obviously you had a relationship for a long time. You knew him for 20 yeah. plus years now. Yeah. Over a very very long period of time, and yeah. uh, it was it was just it was fantastic, and um, and in the book I I photographed some of the letters that he sent me and different things, and it, it just it, it, you know of all the horror royalty, I just um, he was the one that I became the closest to, and it was just a really special relationship. Yeah, no, I just love the fact that you're in this theater in London and. 
He's sitting behind you and recognizes you. Yeah, I know you met him a few times, but there's some people in my neighborhood. We've lived here for three years. I don't even know their names, and I've talked to them 10, 20 times. It's so crazy. And <laughs> running into him, it was like one when I was living in New York and my parents came to visit one time. They were staying in the Wyndham Hotel. I go to pick them up. We're going to go to the Plaza Hotel for drinks in the Oak Bar. And we're coming down the elevator at the Wyndham, and the elevator door opens, and, and walks Vincent Price and his wife, Coral Brown, who had been in Theater of Blood. And he go, again goes, Sam, what are you doing here? <laughs> and we, we invited him to come to drinks with us, and they did, and it was incredible. And that was the night that the idea of me developing a film for he and Coral to be in, and they agreed, and we spent the next two or three years developing it and oh it just kills me it never got off the ground um and then years later um my husband my now husband gary and i ran into vincent at bloomingdale's in new york and we were killing time because we were going to see a, a new um john borman film at the theater across the street oh. and there's vincent price and and he goes sam what are you doing here <laughs> Go, oh, I'm looking for Christopher Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out that he and and Coral were going to the same movie, the same <laughs> show. You know, I mean, it's just like, I, I it, it it's just, all, for all these things to have happened, it just feels like it was some kind of karmic connection that was yeah. awful. <laughs> How long <laughs> did your dad own those movie theaters? Like, were your movies ever played in them? No, he um he ended up I well I guess there was a cross there he did we did have a screening of guilty as charged. Oh, and cool. I guess you're right. Um but most of my other films all with either for, for you know time or direct to video or you know whatever, it didn't uh they weren't really theatrical. Um but he ended up selling his theaters around nineteen eighty or so. But what um, was the name of them? What was the name of the theaters? Well, the one in Asheville was called the Plaza, which was a, one of those great big old uh, vaudeville theaters, you know, Art Deco kind of theater from way back that he bought in the 50s. And it was right around the time, you know, how movie theaters used, you know, in the old days would run, they'd run two movies, a serial, a, a cartoon, and they would have live acts. <laughs> <laughs> doing um you know you would pay a dime or something and you'd go in and see like this four or five hour extravaganza <laughs> and up until the time that he bought the theater you know television was kind of sucking the life out of the vaudeville live back sort of aspects of these movie theaters and they just couldn't afford to do it anymore and when he bought it he changed it into just a you know movie theater just to present movies and um and then in 1964 it, up up until then it was segregated where all of the just terrible in the south black people own entrance they had to sit in the balcony they had their own um concession stand it was just horrific and in 1964 my dad got enlightened and closed the theater and 
remodeled it and changed the whole policy to where everything was going to be equal. And he was vilified. Oh, my God. Death threats. There were, you know, eggs thrown at our house. Flash, you know, it was just a time. But he was, you know, kind of looked upon as like, you know, a civil rights advocate and, and, um, but, you know, it was just a strange, very, very awful time in the South. But, uh, but that theater was, you know, kind of the heart of the town, you know, it, it was the place to go. And, um, I, it's funny where I was just talking to a friend about this the other day. Um, it, there was a girl named Lacey Tribble who I did a lot of, who I kind of grew up with. And we did these children's plays together where um, it was like a youth, you know, kind of thing where, where kids would come and do these plays like Jack and the Beanstalk and um, Wizard of Oz and that stuff. And she was in several of those plays with me. And she remembers going to the Plaza Theater as a teenager and seeing Ken Russell's Women in Love and absolutely getting blown away by that movie. Well, she later married Ken Russell. <laughs> really? Yes, yes. And <laughs> this hotbed of, of showbiz wannabe kids, me being one of them, and Lisey there was another uh, gay friend of mine named Jim David who went on to become a major, major stand-up comic um, and, and, and an LGBT plus kind of, you know, um, all of his act is, is, is gay. And he had the number one comedy album on iTunes a couple of wow. couple and it was number one for months. And, uh, and all of us were doing those little plays and hanging out at the theater and, you know, but, but we all were itching to get out of Asheville and get to where the action was. <laughs> now Asheville is like kind of like a hipster. Yeah, now it, it was. Yeah, now it, Oh, no, I know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and huge gay community, huge, huge arts community. Huge lesbian community. One of the nicknames of the town is the multiple of the world. <laughs> no, it's, it, obviously things change. Like we lived in Portland, Oregon for a few years. I'm, I'm in Jersey. So I grew up, but we lived in Portland for a few years. And all the people were telling us like how different it was like 40 years ago, 30 years ago, like cities can change. But the, the fact that the way you talk about like, obviously like I know the South from like just growing up and history and like, schooling and stuff just hearing about like that your dad's theater had that like segregated bathrooms and then years later how different a town can be it's, oh, it's pretty amazing it, it's amazing it really is amazing but, now just um, let's do that to the rest of the south please you need to do that to the rest of the south. <laughs> so sam this has been great so obviously you had like i've talked to so many people that connect with like hallmark and lifetime like it's such a great <laughs> Just it's a great thing. Either you're shooting in Vancouver or like somewhere beautiful like Utah. But one thing I always like to ask people, especially over your career, like when you were doing the PA and associate producer and with De Palma, did you keep any like mementos over the years from sets, like anybody's wardrobe, scripts, like anything like that? Yeah, not really. <laughs> oh, I feel like such a dork because I was such a pack rat about 
movie posters and stills and all that stuff. And yet I just wasn't even thinking about those kinds of things. It's really crazy, isn't it? It's, it's, I don't even keep them on my movies very much. I mean, occasionally I'll have a thing or two, but not, not much. And we just live in a little condo and there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So maybe you're better off. Like I asked Stuart Pank in that and he yeah. looked over to the right and he's like, Doug, there's a closet over there with a stack of scripts. And it just stays there. He goes, I don't do anything with it. And then other people told stories about like John Carter, like some directors, I guess, uh, or companies like give like cool yeah. gifts. Like this yeah. guy, uh, Peter David, he, uh, Peter Jason, he worked with, uh, carpenter bunch and he said he gives like the coolest like like parting gifts like a cool leather jacket or things like that but no you're right it's like what are you gonna do with that stuff yeah i know yeah. it's hard to pile up and yeah <laughs> but you're living life you're enjoying life that's so cool that you got the movie comes out next saturday the zion 20th saturday the 20th which i guess is this will be out before then. So I'll make sure to promote it on social media and stuff and in future episodes that come out before that. And uh, so cool that the trip to Romania, I think that's so awesome that you and Cassandra, it's like going to be like uh, going to like a time capsule. Now, did they, now, do you know that they kept a lot of those sets or those still some used? Oh, okay. Definitely not there. I mean, there might be props and things uh, that we had that might be in, in their archives. I don't know. We'll find out when we get there. Yeah. But, but it'll be, it's just going to be fun. I, I think that the locations that we shot in, like the church and everything, um, I think those are going to be completely untouched. I think they will be at where when we were there. I will be very surprised if they're not. Because um, they've been there for hundreds of years. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they knocked them down in between then. <laughs> And it, and it's also you know, it's a it's a national, um, you know, it's protected or whatever by some national monument or whatever. So it probably it probably hasn't changed at all. Yeah. Well, Sam, this has been great, man. I'm happy we connected. Love talking to you. I, I can't wait to read the book, and I'll put a, a link in the episode notes for people to check it out because I love your story and I love uh, interviews. So that'll be cool. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Sam was great. So many amazing stories. Just the fact that he like accidentally runs into Vincent Price and just the just the connection he had with him over the years and the friendship they had. And him and Elvira had that same passion for Vincent Price. So they played a lot of those uh, into Elvira's Haunted Hills. So yeah, now so many cool stories. Love Sam. Love that he loved movie you know movie making so much yeah the magazine he was just inspired and i'm so happy that he's still doing it today be sure to check out his movie i know we mentioned it during the interview but brand new it actually premieres this saturday love in zion national a national park romance so there's a saturday i, t- I was about to talk to sam just before he had to go out there and film and uh yeah he loves the people he worked with on that. And so many stories from all the people he worked with over the years. Great, great, man. Uh, check out his book. I was a teenage monster hunter. I'll put the link in the episode notes. So great. So your homework, Oblivion 2. Wow, you're going to see some a lot of familiar faces, which uh, a few of them me and uh, Sam talked about in the interview. But uh, 
a lot of people and it's pretty cool uh, i love that sam used to do that and he says obviously he wishes he could do that now put those people from yesteryear uh into a movie together and you're like wow catwoman's talking to you know a- another throwback character so uh, it's uh sulu sulu not a big star trek guy but you gotta know george Takai's name but yeah so don't forget to review rate share our podcast follow us on all social media at sequels only and don't forget to check out our website sequelsonly.com good night good night